So Jesus was completely different from all other children. His reactions are like all different than all other children. All the rest of the children that Mary and Joseph had. They had sisters, he had sisters and brothers. All of them were normal, selfish, self-seeking, idolatrous sinners. Welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, I do thank you for this opportunity to share your Word, and in particular today, as we look at the Lord Jesus Christ his person and work, I ask, dear Lord, that you would open our hearts to see Jesus, to see the importance of the person of Christ, and to exalt the glory of God in him. Open our hearts, Lord, to to hear, to perceive, and to understand the truth. And any hearers, Lord, who may be listening in who are not believers, I just pray that their hearts would be open to receive Christ as Lord and Savior transform their hearts and their lives. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This episode is number 42, and the title of this message is A Trustworthy Ruler. We are looking at this holiday season at the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And having begun... Uh, let us let's look in particular at God's providence. He uh, instituted civil government following the great deluge or the flood by which God destroyed the world. There is a timetable planned by God by which he will bring to completion his entire plan of salvation. Therefore, he has placed in the world institutions to restrain sinfulness of people, and thereby restrain his righteous judgments. Marriage is one of those institutions. Human conscience is another, and then there are civil governments where they exercise God, where when they exercise God's will well, God refrains from divine anger where they are corrupted. And this may be a concept that is Maybe, I don't know how often it's preached around the country and around the world. But as an example for what I'm talking about, let's let's look at uh, Joshua, and I'll be reading, if you can open your scriptures. Certainly if you're driving, don't do such a thing. Uh, But we're going to look at the book of Joshua, leaving Egypt, uh, the people of Israel, uh, when they were broken from their slavery. Um, They were meant to be a theocracy, whereby God would rule and the elders of Israel and the Levitical priesthood would carry out those God's law. And this is in the realm of what I'm talking about. So in Joshua chapter 2, 11 through 19, we read very important passage in Scripture to open this whole concept of God's sensitive spirit to ungodliness. So quoting from verse 11, all that generation, that's that one that came out of Israel, also were gathered to their fathers, and another generation rose up after them who did not know the Lord, nor even the work which he had done for Israel. There was definitely a breakdown in uh, understanding um, God's history for Israel. They weren't communicating. They weren't passing on, very important, uh, what God was doing with Israel. And continuing, verse 11, Hence the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, those idols, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods, from the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them, 
so they provoke the Lord to anger. We're talking about, I'm breaking up from the quote, uh, religion. And in religion, you can worship one true God or what God refers to in the Word as idols, false gods. Verse 13, they abandoned the Lord and served Baals and the Ashtra, just different particular names for false gods. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he handed them over to plunderers. And they plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them, so that they could no longer stand against their enemies. So it is when nations fight in war in history, they make enemies of those whom they conquer. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they committed infidelity with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do the same as their fathers. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. If the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who tormented and oppressed them. But it came about when the judge died that they would return back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their obstinate ways. That's from Joshua chapter 2, verses 11 through 19. The main reason that I'm looking at this portion of Scripture is because we're going to be looking at a ruler who can be trusted, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. So the emphasis is on leadership. Now, I don't know how many people really get this, um, but Israel was meant to be a theocracy, as I already said. It was meant to be ruled by God. Now, people would be in leadership positions, but those people were... were primarily religious. It's the Levitical priesthood that was put in a position to conduct the, the sacrifices in the religious institution of the church, of the, of the nation. And in so doing, they, were, they would be leading the nation. The, the 10% that went to the Levites, or really it was more than 20%, but you know the tithing as we understand it was given for the religious activity. Um, the, the nation itself would fall under the protection and the rule of Almighty God himself. Now, in contrast to nations around the world that are ruled by people, for people, and in, rather than the glory of God, and they, as I've already said, they, they, they're there to hold back the restraining heart of God, because why? Because by and large, though people have consciences and though they can still be moral and they can still function in a way that partly as damaged by sin, but still uh, are made in the image of God. But being sold into sin the way Romans makes very clear what people are in a sinful condition, it's completely different as a nation, even as individuals. And so there's this dichotomy as well between the individual and a nation of people. People come to Christ according to the Sermon on the Mount. You know, we come as individuals. We come as people who receive or reject the Lord Jesus Christ. People who either recognize their need of a Savior because they're sinners or don't. You don't do that as a nation. You do that as an, as an individual. But the, 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 the world is divided into nations, primarily because of what happened at Babel, but also you know, in this restraining that God is doing. I hope to make that more clear as we go on. But if the leadership in Israel had done what they were told to do in restraining evil and magnifying the Lord Jesus Christ, they would have done better as a nation. Thereby, instead of facing invading armies and being brought into slavery again and again, God would have protected and fought for them. You know, and I don't know what nations are around the world, but at present, the approval rating of the United States Senate 
according to current polls, is 21%. So uh, I guess according to people polled, you know, the, 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 our government is not doing all that well. And as a nation, we have stood in, in a place that was inaugurated in many respects because of the gospel. People coming over here, uh, the pilgrims, you know, in order to flee religious persecution in Europe and uh, to find something where they could have, you know, relief from that persecution. But without getting into that, we're at the Christmas season and we're talking about soon uh, the, the birth of the Christ child. And so there was for Israel, there's prophecies in the Old Testament referring to one who was to come, who was to be the Messiah, the Savior. As in Isaiah chapter 9 and verses 6 and 7, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now we understand God, as the scripture declares him, to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as Father and Son, it's one God, don't ask me to explain that, uh, but in three divine persons. And so we, we understand how it's explained. We don't understand the details of Almighty God, but we do understand that when we see the Son, we see the Father. And so when he's considered wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal Father, it's because of this trinity where it's three persons in, in one God. And so he can be called eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end of the increase of his government. And, and there is a thousand-year millennium coming up in which Christ will rule. He will return. The risen Christ will return. And he will set up the beginning of the eternal age, uh, at a beginning of eternity. And it, and it sets off on earth as it now is for 1,000 years. And all this is recorded in the book of Revelation and many of the prophets of the Old Testament. And, uh, and then, after that 1,000 years of God doing it right on earth and uh, restraining evil as it should be restrained, as a government of people, people who are born again, who have been regenerated into the kingdom, and as saved souls made righteous, they will rule. And he will rule with a rod of iron. And it still be up to individuals whether or not they receive that rule into their hearts and souls. And there will be the great white throne uh, judgment following that thousand-year reign of Christ. The question for us today is this, in this moment, what will that rule, what will that ruler be like? Uh, and to answer that question, we simply have to answer another question, equally as important. What was Jesus like the first time he came? When he came and he, he, be, he lived his life, and we have enough in the scriptures to tell us exactly what he was like, and we're going to look at just briefly, really, at that, we're, we're going to answer that question. What will that rule be like then from what he was like the first time? And the first thing I want to look at, the first picture of this person of Christ is Jesus was God, made man, and as such he possessed infinite power. Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3 says this, God after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, that's all Old Testament, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, that is the Son, is the radiance of his glory, the Father's glory, the Holy Spirit's glory, God's glory, and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So after going to the cross, after having been raised to the dead, after having communicated his resurrection for 40 days before Pentecost, 
Then he went up and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus proved himself to be the creator. Let's look at that first. In Matthew 14, 16 through 21, we read these words in the gospel as referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. Give them something to eat. So the crowds had been following Jesus, and now it was late, and you know they needed around food, and Jesus and the disciples were concerned they were going to be hungry. And they said to him, to Jesus, we, ha- here, we have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said to them, bring, here, bring them here to me. And ordering the multitudes to recline on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food. And breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitudes. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. And there were about 5,000 men who ate, aside from women and children. So we could understand there's probably somewhere between ten and 20,000 people if there were just as many women and children, at least 15. And in those days, the amount of children, yeah, it was probably closer to 20, maybe 25,000 people. I don't know. But at least 5,000 men and all the rest. Now, when you're talking about, you know, five loaves and two fish, and you're talking about feeding, I don't know, 15,000 people uh, plus, um, yeah, this is creation. This is the creation of a whole lot of food. And who creates? Well, Almighty God does. So we understand, and I want to understand this for a reason, that Jesus had the creative power and all power of Almighty God. And Jesus never abused his power all the days of his childhood, his young manhood, and ministry leading up to his death on the cross and subsequent resurrection. All of that time, he never abused it. Never. Jesus grew like every other normal child. In Luke 2.40, it says this, And the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and in the grace of God was upon him. Now, when I was a kid, I mean, even after I was a kid, I, I, I would see, watch once in a while, you know, you watch Twilight Zone. And it's, you know, fanciful and interesting stories sometimes. And one of them was about a, I don't know, 10, 12-year-old child uh, who had these mysterious powers. He could do what he wanted. And it became, you know, really scary in that episode how the town, small town, Midwest, just were frantically afraid of this little child because what he was capable of doing. We've all seen temper tantrums. Maybe we've had them. We've seen what happens between friends and you get in a scuffle and fighting and and how, you know, how horrifying kids can be when they when they lose it. When they spoiled brats and we've all known them and then they're uncontrollable and just ugly. And well, just let's think for a few minutes of what it would be like to have ultimate power. We're not talking about some little kid who, you know, can't push his weight around because he doesn't have any. We're talking about a a child who is Almighty God. We're talking about a child in occupied Israel under Roman rule, where there would have been excessive abuse and misuse of authority. I don't even want to go into the kind of details you can imagine, you know, in a, in a nation that's, they're basically slaves to Rome, and they really don't have any rights, and they're under Roman law. They, yeah, there was a degree of rights, and, you know, because they, you know, Rome was pretty brilliant, and they, they wanted to control, and they didn't want people rebelling too much, and so they would give them some freedoms, but they were under the heavy hand of Rome. And if they had to send troops to bring that down, they would. And they crucified thousands of people during their rule, and particularly in in Israel. 
So here is Jesus with all of this stuff going on, all the years he's growing up until he's like 30 years old and as a child. And there's nothing in history that says he ever did anything. And it would have been reported. I mean, it would be recorded. But there's nothing. He didn't do anything. He never took matters in his own hands. All children, you know, they need corrective discipline. But he never did. Except one time in Luke chapter 2, when we read it from verses 41 to 50, where it says this. And he didn't need corrective discipline. It's just uh, an incident that reveals how his parents viewed him, which is kind of contrary to average parents. It says this, and his parents used to go to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full time, the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, 12 years old. And his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan. And when a day's journey Went and, and they went, after they went a day's journey, they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. He could have, you know, had to be with someone, is what they're thinking. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. And it came about after three days, they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. Now get this, after a day, they realize, oh my gosh, he's not in the caravan. So now it takes another day to get back to Jerusalem, and then another day searching all over Jerusalem to find him. So that's the three days. Well, they find him in the midst of the teachers, and he's listening to them, he's asking questions. And then in verse 47, and all who heard him, Jesus, that is, were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, that is, Mary and Joseph see him, they were astonished. They were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? And that's what they're astonished about. They maybe weren't astonished, and I don't know what they heard and what came from him in the house. But what they're astonished about is his behavior. And they say, Why, son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? And they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And it goes on and says that, you know, Mary treasured all these things in her heart. I mean, get the, get the full, f- full idea of what's going on here. You know, I watch my son now and it brings back memories. Sometimes when he talks to, you know, his sons. And he'll say, you know, you always, you know, maybe raise his voice a little, but they're, doing, they're misbehaving. You know, you, you always do this or that or the other thing. I, he- I hear that from, my, you know, from when my son was a kid. And I had a relatively obedient and, and, and uh, uh, honoring, you know, son, honored me, respectful son, as I did a daughter. But, you know, here's the, the point here is they're not saying that to him. They're astonished at his behavior that he stayed back and now they're finding him and he's not there with them. So the point is, throughout Jesus' life, till he's 12 years of age, they never had reason, ever, I mean, try to comprehend this, ever, to be disappointed in Jesus. In his behavior, what he said, how he acted, his attitudes, none of it. Never disrespectful his whole life. Never disobedient, never did anything wrong. I mean, that's hard to comprehend. But that's what they had in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, according to psychiatrist Theodore Litz of Yale University, quote, adolescence is defined as the period between pubescence and physical maturity. The transition from childhood initiated by a pre-bubertal 
spurt of growth and impelled by the hormonal changes of puberty to attainment of adult prerogatives, responsibilities, and self-sufficiency. Now, this quote is from Introduction to Psychology and Counseling by Paul D. Meyer, M.D. I'm, I'm bringing that in for a specific reason. At 12 years old, this is about the age where this, this whole puberty takes place, where the transition goes from childhood through hormones and all of that physically, you know, to get to this place of adulthood where a person becomes self-sufficient and responsible. Now, that's a hard period if anyone has raised a middle schooler. Understanding when that starts to kick in, it's not primarily respect and adulthood that you see. It's self-sufficiency, pride, uh, disrespect, you know, all of that that comes to bear, that comes to light. Uh, you know, in many places today, adulthood is recognized more for the, the, the right to drink and drive and be independent than to be humble, moral, responsible, you know, towards elders and others. You know, that's, that's the last thing people are thinking about. But that's what it means to be an adult and much more. So Jesus stays behind, and I want to understand what was going on there. He's, he's, he's growing as a child, but he's becoming a man. And the man that he was becoming was one who was really responsible for the, fulfilling the Father's plan. What, what mattered to Jesus was first and foremost the Father, which you, we see in the words when he said, didn't you not realize that I had to be about in my Father's house? I mean, he's thinking in terms of what Mary and Joseph experienced in visions and in, 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 a, in seeing angels and hearing, listen, you're a virgin, uh, but you're going to be overshadowed by Almighty God and you're going to bring forth the Messiah. And he's going to be partly... Human, he's going to be human actually in, in full, and, but he's also going to be Almighty God. They didn't really get that full message, but they understood he's going to be the Messiah. He's coming. And so they flee to, you know, down to Egypt and, and all of these things. And when the children are being slaughtered, you know, by a selfish ruler, a vindictive dictate, you know, that he's being protected. And all of those things went by, and now it's 12 years later. And it's almost like they lost track. I mean, he's our son. He's my stepson. You know, he's my, he's my son, but I was a virgin. But all of that's kind of like he's our son. And Jesus is like reminding them, um, I'm not a normal child. Remember, remember that, you know. And so who was Jesus? He was one who was about the Father's will. Um, and at 12 years old, Jesus far exceeded all other men. He's standing in the midst of the teachers, and he far exceeds anything they know and knowledge at 12 years old. And all who heard him were amazed with his understanding and his answers. So Mary and Joseph, their reaction is, you never did anything like this. And his reaction to them is, okay, I, I understand that, but now you need to start to recognize, remember who I am. So Jesus was completely different from all other children. His reactions are like all different than all other children. All the rest of the children that Mary and Joseph had, they had sisters, he had sisters and brothers. All of them were normal, selfish, self-seeking, idolatrous sinners. I don't, however, they were brought up in the home, maybe to be moral and Jewish and all of that, no doubt. But they were sinners. But he was one who was different, and he was a ruler, a trustworthy ruler, the trustworthy ruler. And, and, and it goes on where it says in Luke 2.40, And the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in the wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. This was a, someone who was totally man. I mean, he went through it all without sin, but he went through exactly like we do from birth right through to complete adulthood. Furthermore, Jesus continued to submit himself to his parents. After this, 
after, you know, he's going through puberty and he's becoming an adult, and by the way, in a lot of lands around the world, not so much in the West, but in the East, you know, when you're 12 years old, you go out, you kill a lion or something, and you come back to the tribe, and, you know, if you live, you know, you're considered, you know, a man, because they understood this. Now, not a full-fledged, experienced man, but, and that's why they got married younger, you know, they understood where manhood started. You know, we just continue to play until we're 21 and act like children and often be treated like children rather than, you know, start this period of being responsible. So he, at this age, when all of this kicks in, goes back with them and continues not only to grow and be blessed by God, but to submit himself. As in Luke 2.51, it says, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. He continued in subjection to them, and his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Understand that this is Almighty God doing this. A perfect man? Absolutely. A man? Absolutely. A man who is without sin? Completely. But also the one who had all power, all knowledge, who in an eternal state was everywhere present, you know, incomprehensible first cause of all things, which is the only thing that makes sense, by the way. It's the only thing that's reasonable. The the universe is far too complex, far too complicated, too far too in precision down to things that you can't even see unless you have an electronic microscope, all of this working together, all these laws of nature, all, all of this by accident, by chance? Yeah, no. It's not, that's, Aristotle thought it was crazy. Einstein said it has to be a first cause of all things. Nothing creates nothing, so on and so forth. So the idea of no God and evolution is just absurd. And here is the God. And he's become like his creation. Man doesn't want to comprehend this. He doesn't want to know it. Because he doesn't want to obey rules and regulations and laws of God. Uh, But this is the only thing that makes sense. And here he is. He's almighty God. And he's living, submitted to created beings. Finite. You know, a a puff of air comes along, you know, and and your heart stops and you're dead. You know, God is eternal, but... Infinite power. We have no power. We can't even control our own heartbeat. And he's submitting himself to them. Is this a man? Is this almighty God that can be trusted? Is this a a ruler that can be trusted? Absolutely. The outstanding and transcendent restraint of almighty God by submitting to not only created beings, but sinful beings that if left to his righteousness would destroy them. Because God is a consuming fire, and we just don't get how holy he is. Because we don't get how sinful we are. But if we could see ourselves the way God sees us, if we could see God the way he is, and we get a glimpse, and really more than a glimpse as you study the word of God, who Jesus Christ is and how he lived, we would then we would understand why before Almighty God he's a consuming fire. But we don't, because we think too well of ourselves. And that's why men... When things bad go, how can a holy God, how can a a loving God let this happen? Well, that's because we don't see ourselves as we should. We don't just see how wicked we are, how we cut people up with our words, how we gossip, how we talk bad about people, even when they're our friends, our family. We just don't get it. But the Bible is here to reveal these things. So another thing we want to look at is Jesus' first miracle was not performed until he was 30 years old. 30 years old. He's restraining all of this. There's no history that says this man went around, you know, and there was miracles. There's people being raised from the dead. There's, you know, he took the, the Romans and he broke their rule and he conquered that nation and he set, you know, the Jews free. None of that until he's 30 years old and then it's a whole different idea of what takes place. So we have this account in John chapter 2 where we see the very first miracle and it says it's the first miracle that happened. We read, and when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. That's a bad thing because these feasts went on for days. It wasn't like an hour, you know, wedding ceremony. They went on, they celebrated, they, you know, they really, they weren't rushed, you know, and had to get business done, you know, and, 
this is a farm community. It's not technology and all of that. And so they actually enjoyed life a little bit better. Well, the wine ran out, and she goes, who's she going to go to? She goes to Jesus. And Jesus said to her, because Jesus was, you know, industrious. He was not only, he restrained from miracles, but he, he uh, knew how to get things done if they needed to be good. And he took over. His father probably wasn't on the picture. And the father, is no, no mention of Joseph from past this age when he was 12. He, most theologians understand he, he probably passed, and Jesus understood what it meant to lose a father as a man. And Jesus said to her, woman, which was a term of respect in that time, uh, but woman, what do you have to do, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, in one sense, he's putting Mary in her place, um, but I'll explain this another way. You know, Christ does God's work, and Christ fulfills the Father's plan, and he does not kowtow, he does not obey the desires of people. You have to understand this is a hard thing to get because we want to think that God is at our beck and call. But James tells us we don't receive because we don't ask, and when we do ask, we ask it to fulfill our lusts. Yet Jesus doesn't God doesn't, and Jesus doesn't, who is God, uh, obey those things. He doesn't answer those kinds of prayers. He doesn't kowtow to sin. He doesn't give in to sin. He doesn't listen to sin. He has nothing to do with it. And so he wants to make sure that she understands that he's not doing this, what he's about to do. He's not doing this for selfish desires, for just human desires. Well, they had need. That's not the point. The point is, if he's going to do a miracle, whatever he does, he's doing what the Father wants him to do. He's doing what God wants him to do. This is the reason man was created. Man was created not to obey men himself, his desires, or even the desires of other people, when those desires are outside what God wants. Or if they're not fulfilling the perfect will of God. We're so far removed from that, it's even hard to talk about. Because we don't think that way. We get up, we do our thing, people do their thing, we're doing our thing. That's the why this is a sinful world, and we're living in the light of a, a, a God who is a consuming fire. Because the universe isn't about us, first and primary. God loves people. That's why he made people, and he wants to be loved by people. But God is God, and we are not God. And this is where we go through Judges, and we're learning about idolatry. We make everything idols. Jesus is not part of that. So he says to his mother, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. It's close. He's about to start revealing himself as Almighty God. He's going to feed the thousands. He's going, you know, he's going to heal the sick. He's going to raise the dead. He's going to make the blind see, the lame walk. He's going to do all of these things to reveal that he loves people and that he's God and he can do it and he is the Messiah, but he's not just obeying the whims and wishes of people. So we go on in this passage and it says, Now there were six water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bride, the, the, the groom, and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, you know, they're feeling pretty good, then that which is poorer, you have, the, you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory to his disciples, uh, and his disciples believed in him. This was the beginning of his signs. Very, very beginning, right here. This is not sign number one. Miracle number one. 
doesn't take place until he's approximately 30 years old. To one degree or another, we all rule our own lives by the decisions we make. Jesus, the decisions he made were for the Father's glory. From the time it was, you know, he was 12 years old, and that puberty is kicking in, and he's going from a little child to a man. Exceedingly brilliant as any child has ever been. From the time he started to, the wee beginnings as growing from a child into a, into a, a, into a child, from a baby, you know, he started to understand like no child ever did. When he's sitting in synagogue and he's hearing the law read, he's getting it, you know. He's growing quickly. By the time he's 12 years old, you know, all those who'd been li- living under the law and studying the law all their adult lives were ax- maggots compared to this child who is Almighty God. He's a man, completely a man, but he's completely God and he's growing rapidly. And he's not only growing intellectually, he's growing emotionally. He's growing into the God that he is. And he's grown to show forth the characteristics. That we've, what we've been talking about is how he behaved as a child. Men in positions of authority rule the lives of others. We all rule our own lives. We make decisions. And so we're, we're the, the, the prince you know, the king of our own lives, the captain of our ship, as it were. And we make decisions. We, we look to leadership because leadership makes rules over us. And we live in a democracy, supposedly, a republic. And uh, it's being governed by men who make rules and taxes and how those taxes are. And there's such a complaint against because in nations, there's so much corruption. Where there's... You know, where there's power, power corrupts. And ultimate power, power corrupts ultimately among sinful creatures. But God is incorruptible. God is incorruptible in that he lives, his existence is eternal. He's incorruptible because what he says is law is law. He's the source of all things. He's the source of goodness and light and love and, and responsibility and all of those things in, in the best possible way. A way that we don't really comprehend because we're, we're part of the culture of this world that even after people get receive Christ, re, repent of sin, given a new heart, are a new creation in Christ according to the Word of God, Corinthians. You know, when these things take place, when we understand these promises and this hope and this truth, we're still, you know, affected by this, the ways of this world which we're called to be separate from. And so this whole idea of who Christ is, as he grows, as he matures, as how responsible he became, it's, it's hard for us to grasp, but we, what we need to try, we need to meditate on these things. What kind of rulers do we make? What has what the world been like? The, the, the history of the world, it's been said, is the history of war. We're not peacemakers. We don't look to love one another as we love ourselves and care for ourselves. We're not going to go to our neighbors and start building and help them do their jobs. And that's, a, that's a world that God is making once he's done with this one and he puts people in that kind of eternity. It's going to be an eternity of that kind of love. People will always think of others first. People will always love to the max people, others first. That's what God is making, and that's how Jesus lived his life. He restrained himself because he was humble. He restrained himself because he was submitted, brought himself in subjection to the Father's will. That's the whole thing. He could have fixed everything, but there's a plan. And he did fix everything for those who would believe. Because at the end of that life of growing up, when he became 30, he went out and he healed the multitudes and he did miracles and he revealed himself for who he was and he preached a gospel that men should long to hear. He preached the golden rule. 
You know, treat others as you would be treated. No one heard it before then. There are other, you know, phys- philosophers and wise men who had some kind of take on those things. Because, you know, all truth is God's truth and God restrains evil and God does good in the world and he's given men a conscience. And so when those kind of things appear, we shouldn't be surprised. God is in the business of restraining his wrath. And when all of those things are real, it's not just because God created man in his image and then man goes off and and he continues to live in his image. He doesn't. He lives as a sinner. And God restrains and restrains and he tries to keep men in that arena of some type of morality. Why? You don't hear this much. But it's what it is. Spend some time in Judges. Spend time, time in Israel's history. The people called out, given the law of God, promises, the prophets, you know, the promise of the Messiah, all of this. And, and, and look how Israel acted. I mean, they got to the point where they're throwing their children into the fire to be blessed themselves. This is unrestrained evil. This is where man's heart goes. But we want to take the words of Calvin who talked about the image of God and we want to bring that to the max when it's the restraining hand of God that even allows that to continue. Because when men are finally cast off into judgment, when men are, uh, you know, when you read Jonathan Edwards, you get this. And he was reported to be the most brilliant man on, earth, on, on American soil. When you, when you hear him, when you read him, and you understand what the Word of God says. The Word of God, from the Word of God, we understand when that judgment takes place and everything is stripped off and man is sent into eternal judgment, all of that facade, all of that fake morality, all of that hypocrisy is just stripped away and men are left to be placed under the punishment of of a God who is a consuming fire. Because men are, according to Romans 3, haters of God. Haters of God. We hate God. That's why we make idols. But that was not who Jesus is. And then after 30 years, 33 years, somewhere in there, he went to the cross. He fulfilled the plan to the max. He carried in his body the wrath that we should experience so that those who believe in him according to his divine purpose, his divine plan, and his divine election would receive mercy. No one would receive mercy if it were left up to them. Romans 8, 7 makes that perfectly clear in many other verses. We are hopelessly lost and hardened in our sin and we are slaves to sin. Romans 6, Romans 7 slaves to sin. Why? Because that's what sin does. It enslaves the one in whom it dwells. Out of the land of bondage, out of the the nation of, of slavery, the house of slavery, I have called you. Exodus chapter 20. Slaves to sin, Christ took the punishment on the cross bored in his own body, placed in the grave for three days, set the captives free, raised from the dead, and the life that we're talking about right here, subjected to the will of God, loving God, loving others, it all begins at the point a sinner repents of sin, recognizes Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation, and in him and in him alone, I have the hope of eternal life. I have eternal life. That's the life of God dwelling in us with all of this love and righteousness and mercy and justice, all of it in the person, in the hope, in what Christ did. That's what salvation is about. And we start to live that out as we exalt the word of God and take what it says over what men say and what men teach. Absolutely important to understand. Jesus proclaimed the gospel message and staggering truths. And all of those truths have been absorbed into the cultures in the West. 
but we've rejected it over the last 2,000 years, and we've gotten to the place where we don't even believe there's a God. He went as a lamb to the slaughter for those who hated and rejected him. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. They're putting to death the only chance they have of being saved. And then he rose from the dead. If you hear these words, if you understand this lesson, if you're a Christian, understand that this is the kind of life that we're called to. Submissive, subject to God, not living for ourselves, not self-seeking, not trying to get the next new car and the next house and increase and increase and increase. What we're looking for is to share the gospel with others, to study and be true to the word of God, and first and foremost, to pray. My father's house shall be called a house of prayer. And so he made a whip and chased 11,000 people probably out of the temple, throwing the tables over in a controlled anger because God is controlled, but he's angry. And that's what we're talking about here. There's Jesus representing Almighty God, who he was, who he is, chasing people out because they were corrupt and they were worried about making money in the temple and they were corrupt in making the money when in fact the temple was to be God's house and a house of prayer for all the nations. That's what the church is first and foremost about. The only good sermons come out of a life of prayer. The only good practicing of those sermons comes out of a house of prayer. Christians ought to come together to pray, first and foremost. As they learn the word of God, as they teach one another the word of God, as they learn the truth, as they see Jesus, they are to pray. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for your word. I give you praise and honor and glory for your word. can't say these things. We can't know these things. Unless we go through the Gospels and we see Jesus. Lord, let us see Jesus as he is, not the way we want him to be. Not according to the traditions of our, 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 our sect in Christianity. Not according to higher criticism that destroys the Bible that they, they don't want. But taking all of the word of God and understanding it as it was written and, and what God meant by what God said. Help us to be people who are humble. Fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might pray with a fervency and supplication and with heartfelt desire and with faith for all the nations, for all people, for those closest to us, those who we care about. Give us, Lord, in this holiday season and all year round, a heart for others. For your honor and for your glory, may we love you in everything we do. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.